Justice Ginsburg, will you raise your right hand and repeat after me? I, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, do solemnly I, swear. I, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, do solemnly swear that I will, that support, I will support and defend, and defend the the Constitution of the United States. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg was confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court almost 30 years God. ago. So help me God. She was approved by the Senate in a near unanimous vote, 96 to 3. That's an almost unthinkable margin for a Supreme Court nominee to be confirmed by today. As all of you know, RBG, now a progressive icon, died last month at the age of 87 and it's likely that her conservative successor will be confirmed by the slimmest of margins, probably just by two or three votes. Now it says the president is supposed to fill the seat, right? And that's what we're going to do. We're going to fill the seat. This can only happen in North Carolina. I'm Gabe Fleischer, and this is Wake Up to Politics. How did we go, in just a few short decades, from a near-unanimous coronation for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to a razor-thin slugfest for President Trump's proposed replacement, Amy Coney Barrett? Don't go there. Uphold your constitutional duty, your conscience. Let the people speak. I urge all members of the other side of the aisle to provide Judge Barrett with the respectful and dignified hearing that she deserves. The stakes for our country are incredibly high. Rulings that the Supreme Court will issue in the coming years will decide the survival of our Second Amendment, our religious liberty, our public safety, and so much more. And what does it mean for the future of the Senate, the Supreme Court, and the nation? Those are the questions we'll be answering in this week's episode of Wake Up to Politics. It's a complicated story. But luckily, I'll have some expert guides to help explain yep, it. All's good on my end. Okay. Well, hi, Sung Man. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Good, when were you on the Hill? Sung Min Kim covers Congress and the White House for the Washington Post. And she's one of the best sourced reporters on the judicial nominations beat, which makes her a perfect guest to help us understand how Supreme Court confirmations went sideways. Awesome. So I'm hoping kind of with this episode to just kind of basically dive in to answer the question of like how Supreme Court confirmations got so divisive, how we went from someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg being confirmed almost unanimously just a few decades ago, and now her successor probably going to be, you know, a 51-49 vote, something as close as it gets. And so I have a few ideas of where to kind of start that narrative, but I'm wondering where you would kind of peg the beginning of that kind of evolution um, where bipartisan judicial confirmations just kind of dissipated. Sure. I mean, the judicial wars have been raging in Washington for years, if not decades. With great pleasure and deep respect for his extraordinary abilities, I today announce my intention to nominate United States Court of Appeals Judge Robert H. Bork to be an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. Um, Republicans have uh, Republicans have actually pointed as far back as the nasty confirmation fight over Robert Bork. Uh, Mr. President, I oppose the nomination of Robert Bork to the Supreme Court, and I urge the Senate 
to reject it. Who was a Reagan Supreme Court nominee um, back in the 80s and just how Democrats, uh, you know, fought him and actually successfully killed his nomination. Robert Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions. Blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters. Rogue police could break down citizens' doors in midnight raids. And school children could not be taught about evolution. Writers and artists would be sent Bork immediately became a lightning rod, as Democrats seized on some of his comments about abortion and civil rights, like you just heard in that clip from Senator Ted Kennedy. Kennedy's speech, Robert Bork's America, became symbolic of how toxic the fight over Bork had grown. Then, that was a rarity. Now, it serves as a preview of how pretty much all Supreme Court confirmation battles would eventually become. The Robert Bork nomination ended today. The Senate voted by an overwhelming 58 to 42 margin to reject the controversial The Bork nomination fight was such a big deal that his name even became a verb. To Bork is now synonymous with blocking a presidential nominee. But that was only the beginning of what Sung Min calls the judicial wars. Where it really began to escalate was actually in the um, in the George W. Bush years, and it actually wasn't over a Supreme Court nominee. It was over um, a, a set of lower uh, lower level courts, the circuit court nominees, which are definitely more um, unknown, but almost you know almost as important as the Supreme Court, because the Supreme Court, remember, they only really hear one percent of all. You federal cases. During the Bush era, it was still common for judges to receive pretty bipartisan confirmation votes, and incredibly rare for them to be filibustered, which meant being denied an up or down confirmation vote. So uh, back in the George W. Bush years, there was a major fight over um, appellate nominees that uh, W. Bush put forward, um, and Democrats uh, waged a successful filibuster of some of them. I mean, we talk about filibusters of nominees nowadays, like like as if it's just part of the standard procedure. But back then, I mean, in 2005 or so, it really wasn't. At that time, the Senate rules allowed the minority party to block a nominee from receiving a confirmation vote, or filibuster them, if they couldn't get 60 votes on a procedural step known as a cloture motion. There was one Bush uh, judicial nominee in particular named Miguel Estrada, um, and he sort of became like this icon of these judicial fights when Democrats, you know, filibustered his nomination to um, to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And that's kind of what's, um, I don't want to say started the fight, because obviously it's been going on for a long time, but that's part of this um, escalation of these judicial wars. It's been like this tit for tat for tit for tat for tit for tat um, between Democrats and Republicans in the Senate and also in the White House. The Democratic filibusters of Bush's Circuit Court nominees what brings us to the Obama era, when Republicans did the same thing, again and again and again. Now we go to the Obama era fights, mm-hmm. when Republicans repeatedly filibustered over and over key critical uh, judicial nominees that Obama had wanted, particularly to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is basically, which is usually considered the second most important court after the Supreme Court in the country. And that's when Democrats went nuclear. Um, And that's what triggered 
uh, then-Majority Leader Harry Reid and most Senate Democrats to go nuclear. It's an historic change Democrats say will help fix a broken system. It's time to change the Senate before this institution becomes obsolete. And Republicans argue will make Washington gridlock worse. It puts a chill on the entire United States Senate. Senate Democrats voted to lower the threshold to break a filibuster from 60 votes to 51 votes, a simple majority. It strips the minority party's ability to block a president's nominees. It's called the nuclear option for good reason. Sungmin Kim. To basically change the rules so that you no longer needed 60 votes to advance a nominee, um, that you only needed 51 votes to break a filibuster. And then that's what prompted, um, you know, and that got a lot of uh, stalled Obama nominees confirmed. That was 2013. One year later, Democrats lost the Senate majority. Then, in February 2016, Justice Antonin Scalia died and President Obama put forward Judge Merrick Garland to succeed him. Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate Majority Leader, refused to even consider him, saying the seat should be filled by the president chosen by voters that November. Mr. President, the next justice could fundamentally alter the direction of the Supreme Court and have a profound impact on our country. So, of course, of course, the American people should have a say in the court's direction. The American people may well elect a president who decides to nominate Judge Garland for Senate consideration. The next president may also nominate somebody very different. Either way, our view is this. Give the people a voice in filling this vacancy. What McConnell did um, back in 2016 with just ignoring Merrick Garland's nomination to the Supreme Court was absolutely just stunning. Um, and I think it surprised even Republicans at the time that he moved so quickly to um, say essentially the same night of Justice Scalia's death that he would not, you know, th- that the seat will not be filled this year. Of course, it was Donald Trump who the voters picked later in 2016. His choice to fill Scalia's seat, Neil Gorsuch, was immediately met with fierce Democratic opposition. So to confirm him, the Senate had to go nuclear once again. McConnell removed the 60-vote threshold the Democrats had left in place only for Supreme Court justices. The showdown over the Supreme Court tonight and to that historic move in the Senate. Republicans triggering the so-called nuclear option. A historic day in the Senate, Republican lawmakers trigger the nuclear option, changing Senate rules for Supreme Court nominations. It sets up a confirmation vote for Neil Gorsuch tomorrow. And that brings us to 2018, when President Trump's second Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, joined the court only after one of the nastiest confirmation battles in recent memory. He was approved 50 to 48, the narrowest margin in more than 130 years. Both parties are still smarting for that fight, as Democrats objected to Kavanaugh being confirmed despite allegations of sexual assault, while Republicans argued that the justice was treated unfairly. Now, the Kavanaugh fight is being cited by Republicans as part of their reasoning for moving forward with President Trump's nominee, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, just weeks before the election, even when they blocked Obama's election year nominee four years ago. 
Republicans really felt that they that Democrats kind of did a character assassination and played dirty in the Kavanaugh fight. And they say because of what Democrats did, all rules are out the window and um, and we're going to go forward with whomever is nominated this week. And so that's how we got here to the present day, to both sides bringing decades of grievances with the same combat mentality. All rules are out the window. Back in the Bush era, when the judicial wars were just beginning to turn bitter, a bipartisan group of more moderate senators came together to bring the Senate back from the brink of going nuclear. In the Senate, we love to talk about these bipartisan gangs that get together to try to stave off a crisis. And one of the best known gangs of the Senate era was the Gang of 14. So it's uh, seven Democrats, seven Republicans who came to this agreement saying, you know, we will we will not filibuster nominees. Um, we will vote to advance them to try to stave off all these major procedural changes that ca- eventually came under Harry Reid and Senate Democrats in 20. The Gang of 14 agreed to vote together on Bush's nominees. It was enough Democrats to avoid the nominees being filibustered, and enough Republicans to avoid the nuclear option being invoked and ending the filibuster altogether. It was a rare triumph of bipartisanship, a truce of sorts that was able to stave off the judicial wars for at least a few more years. I asked Sun Min if there was any possibility that another gang of that sort might form in the Senate now to bring back some form of bipartisanship to the confirmation process. Back during the Bush era, I'm curious if you, if you see a possibility for another kind of bipartisan gang to try to like bring the temperature down. Is that something that's discussed in the Senate at all? I was picking up very little in terms of that discussion this week. There had been some chatter among a a couple, like literally a couple of Senate Democrats, but clearly that is not going anywhere um, because at the end of the day, McConnell has the votes that he needs. I mean, if you, one of the sayings in the Senate is if you have the votes, you can kind of go ahead and do what you want. You don't need to compromise with the minority party. You don't need to bring together some sort of a gang to um, to advance something or to stave off something from happening. So I, you know, any attempts to um, kind of compromise, it's 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 now, you know, it's not I don't I just don't see it happening. If anything, Sungman said, we're headed in the exact opposite direction. The top Senate Democrat, Chuck Schumer, has said all options are on the table if Democrats win back the Senate majority in the fall. And that could mean potentially pushing through legislation that would increase the number of justices on the Supreme Court from the current nine. It's an idea that originates with Democratic President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who tried, and failed, to grow the court back in the late 1930s. So since then, the pack, quote, packing the court has been seen as kind of like a derisive term for expanding the number of seats on the court. Um, but now it's just used freely as part of the Democratic agenda, not just necessarily for, um, for, and it's not just Republicans who are using it to criticize Democrats. It's Democrats, you know, mm-hmm. proudly saying that we will pack the courts if we take back the majority and, um, and, and Biden wins the White House. The number of Supreme Court justices isn't etched in the Constitution, so Congress can legally change it. But to do so would be another huge step towards removing the norms that once governed judicial confirmations. 
with judicial fights. It really does strike at the core of the institution. And I think, you know, there are still several institutionalists in the Senate for whom this really matters. Um, the founders did create the Senate to be kind of that, remember that cooling saucer compared to the passions of the House. And that is certainly not what you're seeing right now with these judicial wars where things are just being escalated one after another. I know this can all be confusing, and honestly, a bit dispirited. So why should you be paying attention to it anyways? Uh, th- thanks so much, Anna. How you doing? For help answering that question, Thank you, Gabe. I called up my friend you? Anna Salvatore, good, good. So the founder of High School SCOTUS, a blog which covers the Supreme Court from a youth perspective. I became interested in the Supreme Court in my freshman year of high school when I was in a study hall, pretty bored, and stumbled across the oral argument transcript for a Supreme Court case. It was an immigration case called Maslanyak versus the United States. And for some reason, that case hooked me, not necessarily because of the legal arguments, but because I was surprised that I could understand it. And every second that I read, I I learned more. Um, It was intoxicating. So since then, I've been blogging about the Supreme Court at a website called High School SCOTUS, interviewing journalists, judges, and law professors, and editing the work of other teenagers who are interested in the court and who wrote for my blog, High School SCOTUS. So very happy to be here to talk about the court with you today. When people are watching politics, generally Congress and the White House grab the most attention. But Anna says it's just as important for all of us to be closely watching the third branch of government, the judiciary, as well. Um, The Supreme Court has an outsized importance in all Americans' lives. Just to take um, last term as an example, the justices struck down abortion restrictions in Louisiana, held that the Civil Rights Act protects gay and trans Americans from discrimination at work, and it said that some religious companies don't have to include contraception in their insurance packages. So every year the court hears cases like this and many others which touch on everything from the health of the environment to the health of your workplace environment. I think that if you're fortunate enough to have the time, which is important, you should follow the Supreme Court. It's part of being a civically engaged citizen. This episode is being published on Monday, October 5th, the first day of the Supreme Court's new term. And there are a lot of high-stakes cases that the justices will be wrestling with in the months ahead. And all of them are likely to look a lot different with a new justice taking Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. The question facing every Supreme Court nominee since the 70s has been, will he or she overturn Roe versus Wade? And with the justice who will replace Justice Ginsburg, we can be confident that she would at least undermine Roe. So... While it's impossible to make an ironclad prediction about whether a nominee would for sure overturn Roe, which also plays into the nominee's views on on precedent, um, we we can be pretty confident that she will be hostile to abortion rights. Um, That's not the only issue, though. There's also the Affordable Care Act. Um, this, This fall, the Supreme Court will be hearing a broad challenge to Obamacare. And it's possible that whereas Chief Justice Roberts a few years ago stepped in and and saved the act from being toppled, the new justice would not feel similarly. Um, They might feel that you can't separate the individual mandate from the Affordable Care Act um, without damaging the integrity of the law. So they might feel that you should you should strike down the law altogether. And then there are a slew of cases on different government regulations, many of which can have a big impact on American life. And then a new justice might rule differently on the administrative state than Justice Ginsburg would. 
a major issue for the Supreme Court in the next few years will be the legality of many of the administrative state's actions. Several of the conservative justices right now are skeptical that government agencies, like the Environmental Protection Agency, are allowed to broadly interpret the laws that um, they're in charge of implementing. The justices have argued that if the separation of powers means anything, it means that executive branch departments can't inject their own interpretations into vaguely worded laws. And as a result, a Supreme Court with a new six-justice majority, with the new nominee, might roll back the power of these agencies and eliminate something called Chevron deference, which is a longstanding practice in which the courts are really, really deferential to an agency's own interpretation of a statute it administers. For a long time, as they were shaping big portions of American law and life, from abortion to healthcare to the environment and more, the justices remained mostly shrouded in secrecy. And that's mostly still the case, as their conferences and decision-making all take place behind the scenes. But one part of the court's process will be different this term, with a new era of transparency having been ushered in by the coronavirus. What's huge and different about the court during the pandemic was that they were live-streaming oral arguments, which they had never agreed to do before, partly because they were worried that people might start politicizing the court or taking clips out of context um, from arguments and putting them on national TV. That, that didn't really happen during the pandemic. And I think they're going to be continuing live streaming this fall since they're not able to have in-person arguments. I was really excited uh, over the past few months, well, not during the summer, but when the court was in session, to hear my friends say that they were listening to arguments, people who never otherwise would have had access. They, you would have had to go to DC, wait in line early in the morning and hope for one of about 55, 60 available tickets to the courtroom. I'm not incredibly optimistic, but I'm really hoping that live streaming continues even after the pandemic is over so that people of all ages, especially young people who are learning about the court, um, can have that opportunity. You can listen to those live streams starting today on C-SPAN, where you'll also be able to catch Judge Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings and eventual vote in a few weeks. At both the court and the Capitol, there's sure to be a lot to watch for. My thanks to Anna Salvatore and Sungmin Kim, our expert guests on this week's podcast. And thank you for listening. Gabe Fleischer is the host and creator of Wake Up to Politics. This podcast is a co-production of Gabe Fleischer and St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is the political editor, sound design, and mixing by Aaron Doerr. The Wake Up to Politics podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, the League of Women Voters of Metro St. Louis, a nonpartisan organization working to inform and encourage active participation in government. Thanks to Lara Hamden for additional narration. If you want to stay up to date in the Supreme Court confirmation battle and all the rest of the news in American politics right now, Go to wakeuptopolitics.com to sign up to receive my newsletter in your inbox every weekday morning.